Welcome to episode 4 of How We Got Here. This episode is entitled, Looking to the Past to Help Us Look Forward. In this, our first episode of 2021, I'll be focused on looking forward to seeing what is in store for the new year. But since this is a podcast about genealogy and family history, before we can look forward, we need to look to the past for perspective. So I'm going to be having a conversation with an old friend of mine, Jamie Bailey, as he shares the story of how his family came from Scotland to New Scotland. My dad used to tell me that all he knew was that the Baileys got kicked out of Scotland and something to do with sheep. And how from this information, it led him to learning about the Highland Clearances and how it changed his family's history forever. After that, I will be sharing some of my New Year's resolutions as well as my goals for genealogy in the podcast for 2021. Welcome to How We Got Here, a genealogy podcast hosted by Brian Nash, exploring the tools, tips, and resources for genealogists from Atlantic Canada and family historians from around the globe who are researching their ancestors from Atlantic Canada. Every family has a story, so stick around as Brian and his guests share the unique family stories that help shape the history and culture of Atlantic Canada. As we are beginning 2021, there's a sense of relief in the passing of the year 2020. I've heard a lot of lamenting about last year, and I have heard a lot of people putting hope in this new year. And really, a lot of this is not uncommon around New Year's. Just this year, there seemed to be so much that affected our region, our country, and the world with the COVID-19 pandemic. Try to avoid political topics where there are wide differences of opinion on, on my podcast, some of which are polarizing friends and families in ways that haven't been seen in generations. And, I, and I'm still going to do that, but I want to, as the title of this episode implies, look forward by looking to the past. So with the recent year that has just gone by, there are many negatives that we are all too well aware of and I won't dwell on, but I want to talk about some of the positives that have tended to get overlooked and are positive for the future. With all that happened and all the changes that we have been made to make in our lives, there's been some good to come out of it. And a lot of this good we can see immediate effects of and some of the effects will hopefully be longer lasting. One of the biggest things, in my opinion, to happen in 2020 was a new emphasis on our families. As various locations and communities handled the pandemic various ways with different types of lockdowns or self-isolation, it is undeniable that we got to spend more time with our families than we had in years past. I know many families that rediscovered family game night and started having regular family meals together. As outside activities and distractions were forced to cease, our families grew stronger and got to know each other more. It was a pleasant change and it's reminiscent of the way things used to be in generations before me, where family once again became a focus. In 2020, there was also a change in the way we see our own communities and regions there was a rediscovery of what's around us um, and close to home. This past summer, with the restricted travel, brought the idea of the staycation. Also, we saw a emergence of support for local business 
and an increased concern for our neighbors and people in our community's well-being. These two things alone, I think, will have a lasting effect for genealogists, historians, and social anthropologists, which is really what I consider myself when I'm doing family research. Specifically for genealogists, there was a lot of adapting and change by archives, libraries, and other record depositories as they tried to digitize more or adapt their services. And this bodes well for us for the future. Uh, for us who do research online or are unable to visit where the original sources are maintained. As the impact of the, the increased importance in family and once local communities, regions increase, there was also a growth of new people interested in genealogy and the genealogy community responded with open arms, helping these newbies to learn the ropes, so to speak. These are just a few of the things that had a positive impact from 2020, and that's how I want to approach 2021. Looking at the positives of the past year and building upon them. In my own genealogical research and in collaboration with others and in this podcast. The other things I want to do is keep in mind history. I saw something on New Year's Day that said 2020 will be remembered as the worst year in history except to those who lived through all any others. And so much of that is true, and we only need to look at our own families and what they had to endure in the past, the two world wars of the 20th century, and for all of us non-Indigenous Canadians, our ancestors, or in some cases for those that are recent immigrants um, themselves, there were challenges of coming to a new land adapting to a new culture, and in the early years, often creating that new culture. There are many related, there are many hardships from the moment they set sail and for generation afterwards, as death was a constant worry. There are those Canadians who came here as loyalists, fleeing from us, the southern colonies, um, often after just a generation of two of their families arriving originally from their countries of origin. There are those Canadians of African descent whose ancestors were originally plucked from their families and brought over to the New World. Some who escaped by joining the British and the Re American Revolution, who came to Canada and formed communities in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick. And, and those who came here through the Underground, Whale, underground Railway. And no, they were no longer slaves they still had to fight prejudice, hatred, and low economic standards. There were those of us with Irish roots whose family fled the famine, who came over here as indentured servants or second-class citizens. And there are those of the Scottish descent who came to settle here, like the story my guest Jamie Bailey um, will tell in the next segment, because of the Highland Clearances, where families were forced to leave their ancestral homes to make a life in a new, unknown country. Our ancestors, no matter how they came here, were often seeking a better life, and I hope they found it. While it was important for them, um, just as it is for us not to forget the past, they didn't let the past tragedies keep them from looking forward to a better future. And that is what we need to do this year. Remember the past, and our own past, and the past of our ancestors, and use it to put our future into perspective. So as we move into the next segment, let's keep that perspective. And after my conversation with Jamie, stick around as I lay out some exciting plans for 2021, as well as opportunities for you, my listeners. want to welcome to the podcast uh, uh, an old friend uh, of mine and Jamie Bailey and he's going to talk a little bit about his family history and how, how they arrived in Nova Scotia and sort of some of the events that, that led to their their coming um, but 
as I like to do with everybody I, I talk to before we get into the meat of it, I'd like to just give you a chance, Jamie, just to introduce yourself and just um, tell us a little bit about how you started pursuing genealogy and what were the, what were, what were you hoping to, to accomplish when you first started? Well, thank you very much for asking me to do this. It's uh, going to be fun to talk about uh, my family and its background, something I didn't know about really until just a few years ago. Uh, I'm uh, 54 years old. I'm a former CEO of uh, Credit Union Atlantic based in Halifax. I also spent some time in politics as leader of the PC party and leader of the official opposition, ran two elections as leader of the opposition, came within 230 votes, sort of 550,000 cast of being elected the premier, uh, uh, which is a close call. Uh, and uh, it was uh, a heck of a ride. Uh, and now I'm back in the private sector doing some consulting. Uh, all of that uh, while raising <clears throat> a family with my wife, Sandra. Uh, we have two beautiful daughters, Alex and Hannah, age 22 and 20. That's the current Baileys. Uh, you asked me how I got interested in this, and really, uh, in a sad way, I got interested in it. My dad passed away a few years ago, uh, and I realized I didn't know a lot about the Bailey family story. But I did remember one thing. I remembered that when I was 12 years old, my father and my great uncle Bert Bailey from Salt Springs, Nova Scotia, took me into the back backwoods of Pictou County, uh, off the highway, down a secondary road, down a dirt road, down a logging trail, get out of the car, hike through the woods uh, to the spot where the original Bailey family graveyard is uh, here uh, in Nova Scotia. And I clearly remember my father saying, I want you to remember this spot, boy, because someday you'll be the only one that will be able to find it. And it'd be your job to keep this place up. Uh, so I made it my mission to find that graveyard again, uh, uh, with great thanks to the Thomas McCullough Center in Picto, by the way, which has the exact GPS coordinates of every known graveyard in Picto County, uh, which is how I started. And then thanks to these wonderful iPhones, which now have uh, GPS tracking down to the thousands of a degree, uh, I was able to track through the woods and find that gravesite. Uh, and I was amazed at how many James Bailey's, which is my name, and Robert Bailey's, which is my father's name, there were going back six generations uh, to the oldest, uh, which was Robert Bailey, who emigrated from Scotland to Picto in 1814, along with five children and his wife. Uh, that fascinated me. Uh, and I wanted to know more about it, which got me on a search through the genealogy records here in Nova Scotia and to the conclusion that the Baileys were in fact part of the renowned Highland Clearances in the early uh, 1800s. Uh, so that of course got me very interested in why they would have left Scotland. My dad used to tell me that all he knew was that the Baileys got kicked out of Scotland and something to do with sheep. Uh, I didn't know what that was, <laughs> uh, but I, I now understand what he was trying to tell me. Uh, and it's been a great journey ever since. So, um, yeah, so the, 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 yeah, the Highland Clearances at 1814, that would be pretty much still near the, the, the beginning of sort of the, where the clearances became kind of a more drastic measure than they had originally been um, in, into the 17, the 1770s, 1780s. Um, sort of the, the height of um, uh, some of the, the clearances where some of the things that had been rare occurrences of the, the forceful evictions now start to become. Um... Yeah, well, actually it's interesting. 1814 is known as the year of the burning because uh, so many crofters, which is what the Baileys were, which are tenement farmers, uh, had their, their, their black houses or their homes uh, destroyed uh, and then burned to the ground so they couldn't come back. Uh, and that's why in 1814, Robert Bailey and his family got on a ship uh, and crossed the Atlantic to the New World and ended up in Picto. It's actually quite an amazing 
story when you think about it, because he was 54 years old at the time, which is actually my exact age today. Uh, I can't imagine picking up everything and moving to a new part of the world at 54 here in 2020, but in 1814, you were an old man at 54. Uh, and he had five kids, mostly teenagers at that time, uh, and a wife which was quite a bit younger than he was. Uh, and they, uh, they, were, they were renovicted, to use uh, 2020 Halifax term. The, their landlord, the Duke and Duchess of Sutherland, uh, decided that they could make their properties more profitable by getting rid of all these crofter farmers who in many cases, including the Bailey case had been there for multiple generations, getting rid of them, evicting them, uh, and then replacing them with sheep farms because wool was uh, very pricey in those days and sheep farms were more profitable than people were. You can almost imagine them doing the, the 1814 equivalent of a of a spreadsheet and calculating their profit margin would be higher with sheep. So I happen to know that the lease for the Bailey property uh, was sold to a sheep farmer uh, at the Goldsby Inn in Goldsby, Scotland, which is in the Highlands in Sutherlandshire on December 15th, 1813. And they were evicted. And the rules of the time were that you were allowed to do one more growing season after you got your notice of eviction, sell off whatever cattle you had, complete one more round of crops, probably potatoes and turnips and that kind of thing, and then out you go. Uh, so in the spring of 1814, they would have had a, a notice of eviction nailed to the front door of their black house, and they would have been given so many weeks to vacate. And then when the time came, uh, a representative of the Sutherland estate, which based on their location would almost certainly have been a man named Patrick Seller. I don't know if you've come across that name, but he actually stood trial for murder for the way he conducted these evictions, uh, not in the Bailey case, but in a nearby township when he arrived to evict a Scottish uh, farming family there was a 93 year old woman in the house and he said, get her out. And she refused to leave. So he burnt the house to the ground anyway, and she was killed. He was charged with culpable homicide as it was known at the time. Same person almost certainly would have been in charge of the evictions in Strathbrora uh, in the uh, township of Scottery, which is where the Baileys were. Uh, so, they uh, gathered up whatever meager belongings they had, and they got on a timber ship called the Perseverance of Aberdeen and set sail for uh, Picto, Nova Scotia in the summer of 1814. Uh, and that's how the Baileys got here to this day. Now, I don't know uh, if your listeners uh, want this much detail, but I can tell you that they were met at the dock in Picto by a lawyer named Hugh Denoon. Actually, first, I should correct that, first they were met by a Presbyterian minister yep. named the Reverend Norman MacLeod. And his job at the dockside in Picto was to greet the incoming ships and separate the Catholics from the Protestants. And if you were Protestant, or in this case, Scottish Presbyterian, they would land you in Picto. If you were Catholic, they made you stay on the ship and you had to sail further up the coast to Anaganish or into Cape Breton, which is funny because that's over 200 years ago. And the, the settlement pattern of Nova Scotia is still very clearly predominantly Presbyterian in Picto County and predominantly Catholic in Anaganish and in many parts of the highlands of Cape Breton all based on the Reverend Norman MacLeod meeting these ships and separating them by religion. And that would be the Norman MacLeod who wound up eventually, I think, in the Gold Coast of Australia. He's, uh... That's right. He, he was quite a world traveler. Uh, you, uh, you are in PEI, so you would remember the Lord Selkirk Ferry, 
that used to cross from Pictou to Wood Islands. Well, Lord Selkirk made a fortune in Scotland by selling passage on these timber ships to the New World. And his brilliant business insight was all these ships sail to Nova Scotia empty, load up with timber, and then sail back to Scotland. He figured why not sell passage on the way over to Nova Scotia on these empty ships from all these displaced settlers. And so that's how the Baileys ended up uh, getting on one of these ships. They were met at the dockside by Lord Selkirk's agent in uh, Picto, uh, a lawyer named Hugh de Noon. And his job was to petition the Lieutenant Governor on your behalf to get you a grant of land. And this was a big deal because these were farmers who never owned the land that they uh, tilled, that crofters or, or, or uh, tenement farmers very, very poor, would pay their rents annually to a representative of the Duke and Duchess of Sutherland. Sometimes they paid it in crops or in chickens. I don't know if you ever saw the show Outlander, but there's a great uh, episode where Jamie Frazier, representing the Laird, uh, goes out into the countryside and goes township to township collecting the rents. And these poor, uh, downtrodden, dirty uh, farmers would show up to pay their annual land rent in whatever goods they had. Uh, they'd line up. I remember watching one of those episodes with my oldest daughter saying, you see those really poor people in that lineup? That's the Baileys. That's us. That's the history uh, before they were evicted on account of sheep. So Hugh Fraser met the Baileys in Picto, and he wrote a letter, which I have a copy of, to the Lieutenant Governor of Nova Scotia at the time, a man named Sir John Cope Sherbrooke, who Sherbrooke, Nova Scotia is named after. And he granted them 150 acres of land up in the mountains of Salt Springs, Pictou County. And that's where the graveyard is that I went to visit all those years ago and have been to again since. So um, so that graveyard is hallowed ground, not just as uh, it is. the area, just the, the family. The, um, and can you you described it now as is wooded is it wooded and, and rocky is it wooded and like I'm, I'm just trying to imagine coming from Scotland and being given this land um, you know what what they actually what they faced and I'm, I can imagine the, the well first of all they faced massive disappointment because they'd been sold waterfront fertile land in the mouth of Picto Harbor like everybody was. Uh, and what they found when they had trekked uh, quite a distance inland up to the top of the mountains of Salt Springs, uh, Mount Tom, is that it's, it's, there's no, you can't, there's no water in sight. Uh, it's pretty scraggly and it's full of dense trees that needed to be cleared. It must have been an incredible amount of hard work to clear that land and to establish a homestead and actually you know, raise crops, uh, but they did. They managed to do it at 54 years old. And uh, yeah, it's it. That's that's amazing. I'm just thinking of all, all the, the the things, even the the provenance of the name of the the ship, the Perseverance of Aberdeen. Yeah. you know that really is what it did. If you, I know the the population of the Highlands in Scotland, even at the beginning of the the uh, clearances they it was still growing quite high and um but there was yeah shortly after the 18 well around that period it started to really drop and mm -hmm. that's where you have that big influx of the, the highlanders into the picto into into cape Breton and anakinish area definitely um you know and it's it's amazing i i i don't really want to tell you that i'm related to a selkirk i don't think it's the, to the lord selkirk's family <laughs> Uh, yeah, but, uh, but yeah, definitely. So your your family, they your you said was your was it your fifth great grandfather? Did you say was it? Yes, that's right. Uh, by my count, so for four generations they farmed that site. And I will say, as much as they were disappointed when they arrived and saw that they weren't on a lush waterfront property, they made quite a go of it. 
and they were very thankful that they owned their own land for the first time ever in the family's history. Yeah. Uh, and I believe uh, the family became much more prosperous as the years and generations went on as farmers that owned their own land uh, than they ever were back in the Highlands uh, where they were tenant farmers. So, so yeah, as drastic as the, the being forcefully evicted from your where you lived probably your family for centuries, yeah. it, it wound up being a positive thing in the, the long term, though they might not have seen it necessarily at that point. Well, I believe, yeah, I believe that to be true. Uh, the Sutherland family, uh, I mean, there's been a lot written about the Duchess of Sutherland, who was the direct descendant, or as we call her in our house, the evil Duchess of Sutherland, uh, who married a very wealthy uh, Englishman, and they were among the richest families in in the United Kingdom at that time, uh, but obviously trying to maximize their wealth, even at the expense of the local citizens. Uh, they didn't want to lose all these workers on their property. They were going to move them into fishing villages on the coast and into the new coal mines that were being developed in Scotland at the time. Uh, however, the government of the UK actually did want people to move to the new world because you think what was going on at that time one of the things that was going on was the war of 1812 and so the british government was very keen to to grow the population of british north america to you know further establish their claim to the territory when we were being invaded by the u.s and actually yeah the end of the war of 1812 the napoleonic wars is actually when the, that's right a, a lot of the 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 uh, clearances you really intensified just because at that point uh, when people were getting along a little more peacefully in Europe, you know, a lot of the the crofters whose land had been taken over from sheep, the, the prices of sheep, um, mm -hmm. the wool had just drastically, you know, uh, plummeted basically. And um, and as they they sent these these people out to to uh, North America and later to Australia and New Zealand or at the same time or, you know, they, it's funny that a lot of these people that were the crofters that were originally moved for sheep and then moved and wound up going to these places and a lot of them wound up being sheep farmers and that's what I was going to ask you, so what type of farming did they do, do you know that they did here and. Uh, yeah, they were, they were, they were uh, cash crop uh, produce farmers. Uh, I believe they had uh, a a small supply of of cattle uh, and barn animals, but they they uh, were mostly produce farmers, potatoes, turnips, cabbage, that kind of thing. Uh, and then they would take their produce down to the town of Picto and and sell it there. And so you you found a, a lot of the this uh, this information. Um, hmm. So. How, how did you go about where uh, I know with me with and genealogy generally you start it yourself and you you move backwards and mm -hmm. going to that graveyard was you know just a, a, a find that I'm a, a lot of genealogists would just literally die for to, to yeah. have that to to have that gen those generations listed yeah. listed back um, and very visible and um, in one place like you said there was a lot of the a few generations of Roberts and Jameses. Uh, yeah, that's right. That then continue. Henry's. <laughs> um, so, when did you, you you talked a little bit about knowing the the time frame? Like, how how did you go about getting this information? Like you said, the the land grant, even getting that. What what resources does you sort of have to the to rely upon? And yeah, uh, well, I'll tell you. Uh, you're right about starting with yourself and going back. I kind of went from two angles. I started from myself and went back. And then because I had found that graveyard with the original settler, Robert Bailey of 1814, I don't just go from him and go forward and meet in the middle. One of the best sources is the Nova Scotia Archives website. Uh, they are awesome. Uh, if you, you can look up marriage certificates, birth certificates, death certificates, uh, for your parents and then their parents. And of course, birth certificates, well, all of them 
will name the parents of the person you're looking for and you can go look up that person find out the name of their parents and look up that person and find the name of their parents and i was able to go all the way back to robert bailey that way and prove that he was uh that i am a direct descendant of his so i have no doubt this is not this is not me just wishfully thinking that i went from me to my father to his father to his father and tracing all those key moments uh, government records was able to draw a straight line uh, from me to him, uh, which was just very, very cool. That moment when it all came together uh, is just incredible. But there are uh, there are other resources as well. And I've got a few here. A Dictionary of Scottish Immigrants to Canada Before Confederation by Donald White has been a great book and it lists thousands and thousands of immigrants. Uh, if you're interested in Picto County, there's a book called After the Hector, The Scottish Pioneers of Nova Scotia and Cape Breton. 1773 to 1852 by Lucille Campy has a lot of great appendices that name the ships that came over and whether they have a passenger manifest or not. Another book is called Fast Sail, excuse me, Fast Sailing in Copper Bottomed Boats, Aberdeen Sailing Ships and the Emigrant Scots They Carried to Canada, 1774 to 1855, also by Lucille Campy. All of them had interesting information uh, about the waves of Scottish emigrants that came to Canada in those years. Uh, and I will say ancestry.ca uh, has been a great way to track it all. When you, uh, so you're using ancestry.ca to sort of compile your records, do you, um, have you, when you went, you mentioned you also were able to find some information in Scotland as well. Yes, that's right. So in the middle of all this initial research, uh, I got very interested in the Highland Clearances. So I was Googling around looking for information and it turned out a new book had just been published in Scotland at the source uh, by the University of Glasgow Press. So I wrote away uh, for it, I bought it uh, online. And a few weeks later, this book arrived at my house here in Halifax. And the name of the book is Set Adrift Upon the World, The Sutherland Clearances by James Hunter. Now, I've never met this person. I didn't even know this book existed until I found a review of it on the internet. It arrived at my house from Scotland and I'm reading through it. And by the way, if you are interested in what it was really like in the Highland Clearances, this book is a, a number of firsthand accounts from the time and does a great job of creating the story, the, the historical record of what it was like. Uh, but I'm reading, I'm reading through the book and I get to page 317 of the book and all of a sudden I find this passage which mentions Robert Bailey. I couldn't believe it. In fact, I've got a bookmark here. I'll just share a little bit with this with you. It's talking about how important it was to become a landowner when you arrive at Nova Scotia from Scotland. And this, this one paragraph, uh, something of what this meant to be a landowner emerges from a petition submitted to Nova Scotia's governor, Sir John Sherbrooke, by an early group of emigrants to Picto from Sutherland. This group comprising 17 people in all consisted of four families. Those families were headed by Robert Bailey, Alexander Sutherland, Hugh McPherson and Janet Sutherland a widow accompanied by her son and daughter. None of the four could write and their petition, in effect an application for a land grant, was drawn up for them in October 1814 by a Picto JP Hugh DeNoon. That's my Robert Bailey. Now think of the odds. <laughs> you get chills when you think about this. Uh, and then it goes on to quote from the petition. And I actually have a copy of the original petition uh, where their lawyer, Hugh DeNoon, uh, says uh, to the Lieutenant Governor, here are a family of farmers who were cast out of their homeland in favor of sheep uh, and wish to make a new home here in, in Nova Scotia. And there's an X at the bottom, which would be my fifth great-grandfather's ex. That's chilling stuff. <laughs> you know? Uh, so 
uh, I mean, this is just where it gets to be really fun to understand how you how you how we got here, as you like to say. Yeah, it's uh, no, it is. That's it. That is exciting to to find that you know just yeah the 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 records. Um, so with the birth records and stuff are always great, but have no, have, have an actual, another sort of a, an account of it mm. and somebody's perspective, probably within that great chapter of that book too, was probably, uh, you know, getting a picture of everything that was going around. And then they actually mention your, uh, your, your ancestor there. That's it, right. It's a, yeah, it's a quite a, an exciting thing. I would imagine I would have, my, myself, I probably would have, uh, you know, stopped right there and said, hey, kids, you know, come, <laughs> come listen to this. Uh, well, that's what I did. That's yeah. exactly what I Because I, I couldn't believe it. I needed to say it out loud because it just couldn't, it couldn't, like my brain couldn't calculate how that was the same Robert Bailey, but it is. Um, so your, your, your family, when, and have you traced much back past him in Scotland? I've done my best to do that. Uh, I can tell you it's on my to-do list to go over and do a more thorough job on the ground yeah. in Sutherland Shire, Scotland. Uh, in fact, that was my 2020 <laughs> travel plan until the pandemic hit. Uh, but I'm glad you asked that because uh, I know it's quite a story from what I've been able to piece together here. Again, I had no idea about any of this until, uh, until I, I got this bug uh, but I know exactly where their black house was uh, in the village of Scottery in the parish of Klein in Loch Brora in Sutherlandshire Scotland uh, and uh, I can't wait to get there and zero in on that spot I actually have corresponded with uh, the president of the Klein Historical Society <laughs> Uh, which uh, is in uh, Goldsby in the parish of Klein. And he's excited to take me up to show me where, where it is because he thinks he knows and he knows Baileys that are still there and so on 200 some years past. Uh, so that will be the case. I will do that as soon as travel allows us to do that again. But, you know, Brian, I can take you back till 1066 uh, on the history of the Baileys. That might be more than you want to do on this one. <laughs> podcast, but uh, the Baileys uh, were actually Norman French and crossed the channel with William the Conqueror in 1066. There is, with a little bit of research you can find on the internet, the list of uh, families that crossed the channel from Norman France with William the Conqueror, and the de Balliol family is one of them. Uh, and they were eventually sent to Scotland to help uh, run the country uh, as uh, descendants as this time goes on of the original families with William the Conqueror. That was the glory days. That was the glory days. In fact, there was a John de Balliol who was king of Scotland in the 12th century. Uh, and he was actually deposed by Edward I, also known as Longshanks, yes. which makes a starring appearance in the Braveheart movies. And if you listen really closely, there is a scene in Braveheart where William Wallace mentions the Balliol family, okay. which is who they were fighting to restore to the crown. Uh, so this is where I tell your listeners, this is where they're going to think I'm crazy. <laughs> I may well be the legitimate king of Scotland today. <laughs> or at least an heir. Uh, or at least an heir. Uh, the Balliols and the Bruces, like Robert the Bruce, had quite the rivalry going at the time. Those were the glory days. The Baileys fell on hard times, obviously, <laughs> since then, going all the way down to Crofters up in Sutherlandshire and then having to get on that boat, come over here. We're on the way up again a little bit now. Oh, it's yeah. Taken the, a thousand years. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's the the, the, the road that is, uh, you know, our, our ancestors, especially going, uh, looking at um, anybody with relatives from the UK, you can, there's quite a bit of that. I think we'd find a lot in common in the paths that our ancestors take and the ups and downs is, especially as uh, allegiances wound up changing quite a bit throughout. The, that's very true. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, so history is written about Robert the Bruce as a great Scottish King. 
Well, the Bruce family was all over the place, back and forth uh, in their allegiances. The Baileys were consistent. <laughs> that, that I know. In fact, uh, mentioning the movie Braveheart, you know, early in the movie, there's the scene where, where uh, William Wallace murders the sheriff of the town, which is an English lord, because he had uh, killed his wife, killed William Wallace's wife. Well, that actually happened. And that village is Lanark, Lanark, uh, or now Lanarkshire. Uh, and I know that because in real life, William Wallace did exactly that, but he, he also had a, a daughter who grew up and married a Bailey. Okay. And as a gift, William Wallace gave them the castle in Lanarkshire where that English lord uh, from the movie lived. And that is the seat of the Bailey clan to this day. I know you're not going to believe me. This is all true. No. Of historical I, record that is the seat of the Bailey clan to this day, where uh, William Wallace's daughter married a Bailey. Yeah. Now, in the in the uh, 1400s, uh, the head of the Bailey clan was a William Bailey who had a daughter Margaret, who was considered among the most beautiful women in all of Scotland. I mean, you can tell from looking at me that oh, definitely one in the family. Uh, she was the most beautiful woman in all Scotland, and she married the first uh, Duke of Sutherland and relocated from Lanarkshire to Sutherland. And there is this uh, paper, I'm not getting this just from simply Googling around, there is this uh, history of the Baileys here. Here it is, history of the Baileys, uh, lives of the Baileys. Okay. Uh, I'm showing you this. I don't think your listeners. <laughs> no. It was written in 1872 by James William Bailey. Uh, and it goes all the way back to 1066. But he writes about this beautiful woman, Elizabeth Bailey, who married the first Duke of Sutherland and relocated to Sutherlandshire. But he also mentions, and I don't think I'm directly related to her, just to be clear. Yeah. Because that, that was the rich end of the family. <laughs> but it mentions in the book that... Um, certain persons from Lanarkshire of the name of Bailey went to Sutherlandshire with Margaret Bailey, the Countess of Sutherland. So that's us. Uh, in those days, it would have been all the farmers that lived outside the castle <laughs> that supplied the castle. Well, some of them went with Margaret up to Sutherland, and I'm pretty sure uh, that would be that would be my wing of the Bailey family that followed her there and was there until 1814 when they came to Nova Scotia. Is it, I, I just love genealogy and finding those little things, yeah. especially if you can find sort of those gateway ancestors that just yeah. lead you, can lead you back because you do, there's well, good documentation um, yeah. going back about certain families and members. Well, that's awesome. I really did enjoy the, the time here. Um, so and I just want to thank you thank you and uh, on behalf of myself and my listeners uh, and I really appreciate this and um, we'll, we'll have to chat again Jamie and we'll check up on this especially if you get to Scotland I'd, I'd love to hear your stories from oh I'm going there once the world allows it once we're all vaccinated and, <laughs> and beat off uh, COVID for good uh, well hopefully you'll go too we'll go uh, and that, uh, that's 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 actually a, my my plan is to sometimes shortly I, I and yeah I've had to very good luck. I find when you're dealing with people in some of those historical societies in Scotland, they're so so generous with their their time. That's right. And they yeah. they definitely do. They want to they want to share. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to that time when I I can go back and um, and, and and visit Scotland and yeah. Uh, so well, it's great talking to you. Yeah, you too, Brian. Thank you so much for your interest in this, and I hope uh, your listeners. Uh, enjoy the story. I know I went on a little bit about some no, I, more colorful times, but th this is all about storytelling this here. Yeah, that's right. All right. Well, good luck with this and let's keep in touch.
So here we are in 2021. As a new year comes, often comes New Year's resolutions. I want to lay out some of my resolutions as a genealogist. So here are my five New Year's resolutions. Number one, I'm going to better organize my source records. Sources are really important in all our genealogical research. And I'm good at getting and recording my sources, but I have to say I rely too much on technology. As I keep links through digital copies, I've been kind of neglecting the copies of the physical records and photos I have. So I'm going to work on my filing system. As I sit in my home office now, I'm looking at various piles and folders that just need to be organized and cleaned up. I know it's not a glamorous resolution, but it's something that needs to be done. As I mentioned in my Christmas episode, one of my biggest brick walls that is discouraging is my maternal grandmother's mother's line. I have just sort of let it lie as I've been blessed with moving forward, sometimes quite easily, on um, the other lines. One line, because of some research and connections, I've been able to... Um, make through well-documented sources, I recently traced back about a century. That's going to be a story for another podcast. So for my second resolution, I'm going to do the hard work of breaking them down that wall, or at least know that I have exhausted all avenues. Number three is I want to make sure I'm continuing my self-education as a genealogist by taking advantage of webinars and courses that come available um, over the next year. I've already done that in the past, but I want to make this a priority and make sure I'm doing at least one course, conference, or webinar, etc. each month. Number four, I want to plan a genealogical research trip for when restrictions are gone and I can feel confident and safe traveling again. And I hope to take you along as my listeners. Not necessarily physically, though. That could be an option but at least have you joining the planning and process and eventually um, listening to episodes of my travels. So even as I write this, depending on how long the travel restrictions last, maybe we can work out some kind of group, group trip. And number five, I want to give back to the genealogical community. I want to use this podcast to do so. One of the ways that I'm literally giving back is by contributing 25% of any funds generated by this podcast to a local genealogical or local history society. For the month of January, the society is the Genealogical Association of Nova Scotia. In the next few days, you will see a link on my website, www.howwegothere.ca, where you can submit the name of your favorite genealogical or local history group when you sign up for my newsletter. And each month, a new group will be selected at random. In the spring, I will be launching my YouTube channel to accompany the podcast. And I'm also planning on doing some live streaming events throughout the year as well. I've already started to put together some videos. Get you started in your genealogical research if you're, if you're new to it. As well as the videos, if you go to my website, you will see a... Uh, a link to book a free consultation where I can help you get started on your family tree. At some point this year, I would like to move from the bi-weekly format to bringing you content weekly. So these are just some of the ways I want to give I want to give back. Now, I would like to ask you as my listener to join on this journey. You've already taken the first step by listening to this podcast. But make sure you subscribe and continue listening. Also, if you're on Apple Podcast, please take the time to rate and review my podcast. The second thing you can do is sign up to my newsletter by going to my website, www.howwegothere.ca. You'll see a link to get yourself on my list. I promise you, you won't be spammed and I will not share your information. My newsletter, which will be starting up at the end of the month, will share news about upcoming podcasts as well as from time to time I will be writing about other topics and I'll be reaching out with surveys or questionnaires about who you would like to see as guests, what topics you would like me to do a podcast on, as well as other ways that I can improve the podcast. The final thing, which isn't necessary, but 
would be greatly appreciated is for you to support my podcast. I want to keep this podcast commercial free, but there are some costs as I pay hosting fees, upgrade equipment, as well as the time I put into each episode. So I've added a support the podcast button on my website where you can make a one-time donation slash tip or you can sign up as a supporter. I'll be working on some benefits for supporters um, that I'll be announcing in my next podcast. And remember, 25% of all funds raised I will be giving back to Atlantic Canadian Genealogical um, Society or local history organization. Another way you can give back is by using links for books I have on my website or in the show notes. As an affiliate of Amazon, I get a small percentage of the price of purchases um, that use the links I provide. That is a great way to support the content you listen to while purchasing books you want to read anyways. So I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode, and I want to say a special thanks to my guest Jamie Bailey, who took time to share his family story of how he got here. And remember, if you want to share your stories, follow the Your Stories link on my website. Until next time, stay safe, enjoy your family, both past and present, and keep searching for how we got here. Thank you for listening to this episode of How We Got Here. Make sure you check out the show notes for more information about today's topic and guests. How We Got Here is hosted and produced by Brian Nash. Title music from Tribute to O'Carolan by Luna Bajowski. (laughs) 